so glad to be with you and love singing with you. Uh, just the singing the truths about God, um, it does something for the heart. You're not only going away with God's Word in your mind, but to when you have a song in your heart that says true things about Him, it does something. So I pray that you believe that what we just did was not the preamble, it was part of the meal. So we are uh, glad to feast today over God's Word, and that's how He uses these wonderful things that we get to do, like singing and music. So as you turn into the book of James, I just want to uh, make you aware of a couple things. One is the back of uh, the bulletin, there's several things that you can look at coming up at TCC. You can go on our website, tccraleigh.org, and check those things out as well. One thing I want to highlight, though, is we are in the middle of um, a push that we do annually, and, and this is a unique season in the life of our church, called, for something called the Loving the City Initiative. Uh, for five years, we have been praying that God would uh, just help us with our time, whatever resources He gave us to be a blessing to this city and to really genuinely be an outpost of love for those that are around us. Not only where we live in our neighborhoods, but specifically with where God has placed us in this facility. We are intentionally in this area because of its uh, high level of diversity and with its proximity to uh, poverty and because Jesus has a keen eye and a deep love for the poor. And so we want to be a part of one another's life because the kingdom of God is a beautiful thing that has rich and poor delighting in God together and multiple races delighting in God together. And that's what we are praying that God would do here at this church. Now, the Loving the City initiative is how can we specifically use, um, when we talk about our facility, we're talking about the Loving the City Center. How can we use this facility as an outpost of love for this uh, community? And so uh, we are raising up um, money uh, and we are asking, we do it only once a year, of just people to give generously beyond their general budget to try to help us uh, expand what we're doing here and uh, really provide more for this community. So we want you to be in prayer about that. Um, we are, if you want to be on an email list, I can keep, put you on that, but I'll be sending out several emails this week. Please read those and just see how God might uh, have positioned you and prepared you for a time like this to be generous with what he's given you to bless uh, this city and one another. So I wanted to make you aware of that. Next week is when we will provide our uh, gifts or pledges and all the way through uh, June the 15th. So uh, next week, please come ready to uh, kind of pray through that and think about what God might have you give. Now we're going to dive into the book of James. We are going through a, uh, the book of James now. We're beginning a new series entitled Faithful, Living Out God's Word in Poverty and in Pain. And the reason I chose those two, poverty and pain, is because those are the, that's the condition in which the audience uh, that James is speaking to find themselves in. So not just creating that because they both start with a P, um, but it's in here, uh, in God's Word. And we want to ask a question, how can we live faithfully? So what I want to do is uh, we're going to go through verses 1 through 18 today, and I'm going to pray after I read verses 2 through 4, but then we will look at the whole of that text uh, together, and just hoping that God would show us His faithfulness and how He will equip us uh, to be faithful. So, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the Word of God reads as such, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, 
greetings. And count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Father, may the words of our mouths and the deepest meditations and thoughts of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Work within us a humble heart right now, I pray. One that doesn't want to cling to our way, but one that wants to hear O oh God, creator of heaven and earth, what do you desire? What pleases you? And how can I so align my life to give you the most maximum glory with the breath that you've given us? Father, please, help us. Help us to want more of you and help us to live faithfully for you. We need you in this moment. And we ask to see you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I love the spring. I like springtime. The only rival is the fall, and I think that's more because of sports. But um, it also is because of the fall colors. But it's spring. Why do you like it? Because what I look at in my backyard, there are some trees back there, and it looks just like a bunch of sticks. But now comes springtime, all of a sudden these sticks turn green. They've got leaves. And what was once barren ground are now flowers sprouting up and it has color. And I just love it. And sometimes when you look at certain trees, the jury's kind of still out on whether that thing's alive or not. And kind of the only thing that lets you know is if it's sprouting any type of greenery at all to let you know it's alive. Well, this year at Treasuring Christ Church, we have been focusing on this kind of one theme over the whole year, and that is abiding in Christ and bearing fruit. It is the belief that if we see God, that there is victory and hope to be found in Him, and there is joy to be found in Him, and our greatest need is just to be with Him and to believe that He is at work in our lives. And so we've been pleading for this first quarter that that we would find it our greatest purpose and our greatest aim to see God and to Go hard after him, not for what he can give, but for who he is. But we also saw in the book of John that as you abide in him, he stirs up and he sprouts out life. That what is alive in the heart spiritually will bear fruit. It's not an exception. And this is what James is really getting after here in this passage. James was written... um, Prior to uh, what is known in Acts 15 as the Jerusalem Council, it was a time when they gathered together to try to understand what Paul was talking about when he was talking about justification by faith alone. Those are some big words. But justification means declared not guilty. Might be how some people use the word saved or spiritually rescued. By faith alone. Not by what you could do for God, but by just trusting in what He has done for you. If you trust in what he has done for you, you can be justified. However, there's the debate in the church that if, if, if it's only by faith in him, then we can kind of, we're free to kind of live any way we want. And James says, no, that although you're 
justification is by faith alone. That faith never stays alone. That faith will produce fruit. If the tree is alive, it will produce leaves. And so the book of James is after what does it look like to be faithful? What does it look like to produce fruit? The fruit that comes from simple faith in God's work on your behalf. And so as we look at this letter, this book, it is written by a man named James. James is the younger brother of Jesus, and he was the early leader of the the church in Jerusalem. So that puts this letter, if it's before the Jerusalem Council, it puts it written around 45, 47 AD, and it's primarily to a Jewish audience. You see that in verse 1. It says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The dispersion were the Jews that were scattered outside of Palestine to the surrounding nations. And the 12 tribes is more looking forward to what God promises to do, not in what was existing then. That is, Israel wasn't known by their 12 tribes any longer at this point in history. They were known as the people of Israel scattered abroad. But what God promised to do was to gather in a remnant of Israel and would be a representative from those tribes. And so ultimately he's just calling out that he's writing this to a Jewish audience. And that makes sense because he was a leader of a Jewish church. But James is unique also in this way. James is like 1st and 2nd Peter. 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, Hebrews, and Jude, and that they are not, it's not written to a specific church, not to one church. It's written to the church at large. It's written to believers. And so you won't, you'll be hard pressed to find kind of a specific setting or scenario where he's driving at one church's issues. He's driving at what he sees as the collective issues of those in Christianity. So what is James concerned with? Well, these Jewish Christians that he's talking to, they find themselves in extreme poverty and they are being pushed down by the wealthy. Most of these wealthy were not in the church, they were outside the church. They were unjust landlords. You see that in chapter 5, verse 4. They were hauling um, people into court in chapter 2. They were scorning these impoverished Christians for their faith, also seen in chapter 2. And the readers are being encouraged here in their poverty and in their suffering, their poverty and pain, to endure, to stay steadfast, to be faithful to what God has called them to do. The other thing that James saw creeping into the church at large was something that we might call worldliness. It's hard to define what that is, but it's ultimately this sense that you could have one foot saying, oh, I love God, I'm trusting Him, and one foot over here saying, but I'm still going to live like I want to in certain portions of my life. Just like that's an awkward way for me to stand, and eventually it'll make me do a split, and that'll be painful. James is saying, it's going to be painful for your soul. If you try to keep one foot in over here, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing God thing, I'm doing religious, and one foot over here saying, but I'm still going to please myself when I want to, how I want to. James says that will crush the soul, and it's not true following. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God, he says in chapter 4. Serious language. And so we want to know what James says here because as God's word, it's going to teach us what it means to be faithful. Now, James is also called the Proverbs of the New Testament, which will help you understand better kind of the trajectory of this sermon. 
Proverbs are kind of, they're not, you're not going to find a linear path. Oh, well, this is a thought that follows this thought that follows this. You're going to find a bunch of kind of more random thoughts connected together. And that's how James is going to roll. What you see at the beginning of James is he talks about how to endure in trials. Then he talks about how to pray for wisdom. You might be able to try to connect those because in trial you need wisdom. But then he just skips on and goes to talk about poverty and wealth. And so that's like, okay, I'm not following it. Then he jumps back to trial. And then at the end, he talks about how good he is. And he's the one that gives good gifts. And so you begin to see a common theme through somewhat at times unrelated subject matters. And the common theme is this. And this is what we're going to look at today. James reveals pictures of what faithfulness looks like. And he points us to pictures of what it means to be faithful. Number one, faithful in trials and temptation. Two, faithful in prayer for wisdom. Three, faithful in poverty and wealth. And four, faithful in his power. So he's giving us pictures of faithfulness. And the first one will be a little longer because he addresses it twice, both in verses 2 through 4 and 12 through 15. So let's start there, shall we? Faithfulness in trial and temptation. Now look at what he says in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, or you could just say family of God. It's not meant to be male exclusive. It's those who trust in God, family of God. Count it all joy, people of God, family of God, when you meet trials of various kinds. So what might these trials be? You see it in James, you see it mentioned throughout the New Testament, we experience it in life. What are those trials? Some examples might be sickness or physical pain. It could be relational friction. It could be financial difficulty. It could be when you were just mistreated by someone or slander against you. When you were falsely accused of something you didn't even do wrong when you are abused, or when you experience significant loss. These are just some examples of what he might mean when he says trials of various kinds. And look at him. He's saying, you will meet them. It's not like maybe. It's when you meet them, consider it pure joy. Consider it all joy. Now, how in the world can we do that? Well, verses 3 gives us the the how or the why. Because, why can we count it all joy? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This issue of testing is, is going through some type of process where then something is determined to be good. It's like when someone told me the first time that Cold Stone was a good ice cream place. And I show up and I put that stuff in my mouth and it is legit. It is good stuff. And so it is tested in that moment. It is, yes, it's good. Okay? It was good. And so here he's saying, what process is going to show your faith to be genuine? And what's interesting here is that just as Cold Stone was already good and I was just verifying it, here faith 
is already there. God has already given it. And the process is going to strengthen it. Make it stronger. It's what you begin to see is it's like a production line. So if you got these plastic parts here and you have gaskets that go here, the ultimate end result is that through this process, an end product comes out. Well, the end product, according to verse 3, is that it's going to produce steadfastness. What's that mean? It's the ability to not give up, to not stop, to endure in something. So trial is a process going to come in various kinds, but it's going to produce an end product of endurance for your faith. You're going to keep believing, and part of the way you keep believing is because of the trial. You also get this because the only other place in the New Testament where this word testing is used is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-7. through 7. So listen to how Peter describes this process. He says this, in this you rejoice, that is, in your salvation. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved with various trials. Okay, you hear that? Various trials, trials of various kinds. He's pushing on the same buttons. Well, why did those come? Why are they necessary at times? Well, it's so that the tested genuineness, and that's our word, The testing that proves something to be genuine. That's the same word in in James. The tested genuineness of your faith, and now he gives an analogy, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, though it perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The trials strengthen faith like gold in the midst of fire, so that at the end you have a pristine metal, at the end you have an enduring faith. Bottom line, how can you consider it all joy? Because God is growing your faith. It has an end result. It's not pointless. God is not just allowing trials or purposing trials to poke you and to just be mean to you, to play with you because He's got that kind of power and He's arbitrarily just kind of wants to show it off that way. No, God has a purpose, a good purpose of taking existing faith and making it stronger. So how can you consider trials pure joy? Because it is growing your faith. The analogy that comes to mind is this. We have several that are CNAs. They'll work in nursing homes here in our church or others that are nurses and they work in hospitals. And whenever you have someone who is really, really sick, they're lying in bed and they can't get out up very much. It's very hard for them to do it on their own. And so the job of these individuals is to come alongside them and to help them get up when they don't want to and to help them take steps down the hall and to celebrate those victories because if not, what happens? The muscles atrophy. You get weak and you can't take those steps. Now, if anybody's gone through that, some type of rehab of any type, every step you would almost rather be punched in the nose. It just hurts so bad. It's just so painful. But you know that at the end, it's going to make you stronger. It's good for you. Well, similarly, what we have here is that these trials are like, instead of physical therapy, it's like spiritual therapy. These trials, 
they make you use the muscles of your faith so that your faith doesn't atrophy. You go through difficulty, you are forced to press into God or to, you'll pull away from Him. Your faith is tested. But in that trial, you press into Him. I've had arguments with my wife and in the moment, it's just like, why is this happening? Why was Sean being a bozo? And I'll feel guilty about those things. Why is this? But what it has caused me to do is it's taught me. It's taught me that I'm not as good as I thought I was. It's taught me how to listen. It's taught me how to serve and not just demand to be served. All of those are exercising the muscles of my faith. Because ultimately what I'm saying is, God, I trust you. I trust your path. And I trust that you are going to strengthen me through this. Every trial, no matter what it is, God promises that for his children, he is only doing good. Psalm 23, verse 6. Only goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. For those who are in Christ Jesus, it's only goodness and mercy. Because he is keeping your faith muscles from growing in atrophy, but growing in strength so that they might get to the end. And this is where it says in verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Don't let your endurance be for a small moment and then give out. Let it have its full effect. Let it last to the end. And God allows, purposes these trials so that your faith will get to the end. But here's what he says, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why does he use those two words? One, this idea of perfection is this idea of growing maturity, that your faith will not say, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you, I don't anymore, and you're done. A perfect faith, a mature faith, is a faith that says, I trust you, 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 all the way to the end. Well, you and I know that my life is a re- I trust you, I struggle, my life, I, tr- I struggle, I trust you, I struggle, I trust you. It's the trajectory, and every time I'm in a trough, God promises He's going to push up me as His child, so that I'm trusting, I'm trusting, I'm trusting. But that's one thing that, his, that trials do. It keeps you maturing, keeps your faith going to the end. It's what he says in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. What he's begun, he will complete. So who ultimately gets the credit for your faith enduring? It's God. God gets the credit. This is God's work. But it doesn't mean that you... You you are off the hook. You have to fight. Fight for faith. And here's one way that I fight for faith in the midst of trials. I pray Colossians 1, 11 through 12. Listen to this prayer. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Why do we need His strength in the midst of trial? For all endurance and patience with joy. I won't endure apart from His grace. I won't have patience apart from His grace. Joy will not be found apart from His strengthening power of His glorious might. So I pray it. God, give me your strength. Make me endure. Make me patient. Give me joy. And I can do that because our Father has won the victory. Isn't that what He says? Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you for an inheritance. He says you're going to make it to the end. The meek will inherit the earth. So you don't have to hold on to this land very hard because at the end of all things, you're going to inherit the whole world. 
He's got great things for you. And so, these trials, they are getting your faith to the end, but they're also completing you, perfect and complete. Now, what's that mean? Well, what does a farmer do? A farmer has a cycle of farming, and then it kind of renders its, the cycle is complete. Here's what I mean. The farmer will hoe the ground, he'll plant the seed, he'll cover it up appropriately, he'll, if he's a believer, he'll plead like mad for water, <laughs> and God has to cause the rain to come, and then it sprouts up, and then he has to go out and do the hard work of harvesting, and then he'll go and he'll sell those crops in order to make money, and as he makes that money, it'll provide a living, and then some of those crops will be the food that they eat in front of them at the dinner table. And when they sit down at the dinner table, and they have that food there, and the money's in the account, and the needs are met, this cycle is complete. What you started has begun, or has ended. And now I know you do the cycle again. Same with parenting. It's this sense of when you're raising up your children, it's wonderful to provide for all their physical needs, etc. But what, what Christian parents want is that they want their kids to love Jesus. And then, though the cycle isn't done there, it's when they choose with their life to give it away to the next generation. And you see those kids giving away their faith all of a sudden by the giving away of what you have received, the cycle is complete and you want it to keep going. This is exactly what he's speaking of here, of what God is working through trials. Because trials are not only an opportunity for your faith to grow, trials are an opportunity for you to love. An opportunity for you to advance Him. Quick story, I was looking at um, Acts 16 when Paul and Silas were imprisoned for something they did not do. Some of you might have felt like you were wrongly accused and treated poorly for something you did not do. Paul and Silas in prison for something they did not do, and they were not breaking any laws, and they were placed in prison, and it says, and this prison was not like the Holiday Inn, it was a bad one. And so they're in this prison, and as they're there, they start singing. It says that they sing. And the prisoners were listening to them. Where does that come from? Wrongly accused, mistreated, they were beaten. I left that part out. Horrible conditions. And they're singing. There's something about they had received from God great mercy. They knew how much they had been loved so that nothing physically that came to them could uproot what was already in the heart. Yes, it could take away all kinds of material things, but what it could not take away was the joy of their salvation. And that trial became a platform. It became a stage upon which, through their response to the trial, it was a drama unfolding for the prisoners around them. And they were able to see that something inside of them is better than anything else they could pursue. That Christ was enough. Jesus was the same way with his response. He was mocked, wrongly accused. He was perfect. He never did anything wrong. And he was crucified. And it says that while he was on his way to trial, he was silent. Like a lamb headed to its shearer like a lamb to be slaughtered. And it says that Pilate, the one who was trying him, Pilate's response to that 
it says that he stood amazed. Amazed by Jesus' response in the midst of trial. So do you get how the cycle is completed? It's this way. It's when you experience the marvelous, victorious, beautiful grace of God in your life. And when a trial comes, you don't run away from him, but you talk about him. You have a confidence in him. And there's an underlying peace that he's for you and not against you. And when you respond that way, you are choosing to love somebody else outside of yourself more than yourself. And it is a cycle that is completed. God loves you. You love others. And the hope is that others will hear of his love and they will love him and they will give it away. Trials are not only a place where your faith grows and gets to the end. Trials are a place, it's an opportunity to love and to advance him. How we respond is crucial. It's a platform upon which we can proclaim the goodness of God. So, one thing I've never defined yet for you is what does it mean to consider it pure joy? I'm telling you, the reasons you can consider it pure joy is because it's growing your faith. It's not purposeless. And it's an opportunity for you to advance God. How can you consider it pure joy? Well, let's make sure it's clear. It's not joy that bad stuff is happening to you. And it's not laughing when hard things hit. It's not a jovialness that difficulty is there. I think we get a taste of what this joy is when you jump down to verse 12. Verse 12 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. This word blessed, it, it's, it's soaked with Old Testament roots of blessing. It's this idea of satisfied, at peace, confident is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Joyful. What is this joy? It is a peace and a rest that you know God is at work behind the scenes. Sometimes you don't even see it. But He is at work through your trials. And it is a confidence that He is good. And He has not stopped loving you. But I want to throw a little bit more gas on the heart of joy in the midst of trial. Because James does. Look at what he says in verse 12. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. You see what he's doing? He's pointing you to the reward. This is parenting 101. You don't just tell a child to stop doing something. You also show them the beauty of doing something that's right. God does not just, he's not just a rule book that says, stop it. He's saying, look at how much better it will be when you run hard after me. And this is what he says. You will receive the crown of life and God has promised it to those who love him. Now, some of you might be tempted to smuggle in your works into that love. Like, do I love him enough? How do I know I'll get that crown? Do I love him enough? That's not the gospel. The gospel is you only love because he what? First loved you. The fact that you love him at all, we're not talking about are you a 10 out of 10 or are you a 1 out of 10. The fact that you love him, mustard seed of faith. 
you will receive a crown of life because God has first loved you. And what is that crown? I've always like thought, okay, it's weird. Like, am I going to like really genuinely get a, a crown like with jewels around it? Is that how it's going to roll? Well, back in, in those days, that's actually not the kind of crown it was talking about. It was actually like a wreath that was placed around the neck for the one who had just finished the race as the victor. It was also used to put around the neck of like an emperor who had won a, a battle, who was victorious in battle. And so what he's articulating is that the victory has been won for you in Christ. And when you come to that last day and you stand before Jesus, his victory in your life will have been proven and completed and it'll be perfect and you will lack nothing, as it says in verse 4. You'll lack nothing. Ever-increasing joy forever. No suffering, no night, all glory, all beauty. You'll be there. But it will be a crown that is placed on your head like a spiritual wreath, so to speak, because what is the crown? It is life. The contents of the crown are not the leaves around the neck. It's eternal life. You're going to be given life. That's your crown. A life that never ends. A life that's in the presence of God. And God promises that eternal life for those who love Him. That's another way to talk about faith. Faith is not just mere belief. That's why we've named the church Treasuring Christ Church. It's not just believe in Christ Church. It's treasure Him. Belief, genuine belief, adores Jesus. Has affections for Him. And this is what He's talking about here. Now, What's interesting when you're in trial is that many times that testing is also a grounds for temptation. Right? You're tempted sometimes to get angry at God. Sometimes you're tempted to get angry at others because you're out of control and you don't know what to do about this trial. Other times you're tempted just to numb your feelings in the midst of trial. And so you're tempted towards placing other things before God. Drugs, alcohol, people, TV, whatever. You just soak yourself in something that gets you out of a reality so that you don't have to deal with what's in front of you. Trials are a seedbed for temptation. Here's what the people that James was addressing were doing. They were saying, well, God has brought this trial, so God has tempted me, so I'm off the hook of doing bad. It's something that God was doing. This is just, it's too hard, right? You've been there. It's too hard for me to respond faithfully now. You can't tell me that I need to act faithfully. You don't understand the pain I'm going through. The trial is so difficult and we let ourselves off the hook of faithfulness and obedience. James says here, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. And let themselves off the hook. As if God were the one that did something wrong. No, it says, For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. It's a difference between testing and tempting. Testing is doing something for your good that your faith might be strengthened. Tempting is luring you to participate in evil. God is not 
in the business of tempting. He's in the business of testing for your good. The devil is in the business of tempting. But before you try to blame the devil, look at where James points for the root of why we choose certain things in the midst of trial. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by somebody else's bad actions. Nope, misread that one. It says, by his own desire. By his own desire. Christians cannot blame God for their sinful choices. They can't say, this is too hard. And so I don't have to choose obedience. God actually promises the opposite in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to this promise. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He's faithful. Not to tempt, but to what? He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure, to be steadfast. You hear the same common themes. You can't blame God. You can't blame Him. He always provides you a way of escape. And you can't blame others ultimately. It says in James that you are lured and enticed by your own desires. Jesus even goes on to say in Mark 7 that it's not what's outside of you that defiles you, it's what's inside of you. He says you can blame all day long. You can play the Adam and Eve game all day long and blame somebody else. You can blame your spouse, you can blame God, you can blame everything else. But ultimately, he says, Mark 7 verse 21, from within, out of the heart of man, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, that's jealousy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, they defile a person. This is why we need gospel in this moment. Because the answer to your sin is not being able to blame someone else or to say, God has made it too hard for me to obey. On the contrary, God says, I promise you, I will provide you a way of escape. I will give you the strength that you need. You will be able to withstand underneath this trial. I will get you to the end, and it will be an opportunity for love. So choose me, even when you don't understand. But now you're still left. The fact that I didn't choose God, that I got really angry at someone else or at God himself. You've been there. I've been there at times. What do you do for the guilty conscience? And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says, yes, you sinner, you deserve condemnation. You deserve separation from the beauty and intimacy of your relationship with God. And yet, God sent His Son, Jesus, to be condemned on our behalf, to be forsaken in our stead, So that anyone who would trust in Jesus, confess their sin, and say, Jesus, you are my only hope. His death is placed on their account. Guilt is washed away. 
and you can stand forgiven. Not standing trying to work yourself out of sin or trying to blame others to make yourself feel better or trying to numb yourself with other things. Go to Jesus. He is a good father and he loves you. And so James ultimately says, there is a way for you to be faithful in trial and in temptation. And he shows us how we can consider it pure joy because it grows our faith, produces steadfastness. It's an opportunity to love and there is a crown of life awaiting all those who choose him. Now, the other ones are really short. Aren't you glad? Here we go, verse 5. Faithful in wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. What is happening here? You could even think about trial. Where at the end of all things, it says in verse 4, you will lack nothing. Right now, you lack things. You lack wisdom. What is wisdom? It's what degree should I choose? What job should I take? Issues of timing, like when should I do this or when should I do that? Or how should I approach this situation? Or what should I say in this moment? These are all issues where where you need the wisdom of God. You need his heart, you need his mind, you need to know how to proceed. And he says, when you lack it, what you do is you don't try to solve it on your own and you don't just first go to other people, although going to other people is good. You first ask God. Why? Because it says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. God is generous to give you wisdom. I can't tell you how many times I have prayed that myself and prayed it over people. Oh God, give us wisdom in this moment. I believe you are generous and you delight to do it. God, do it. But when you are praying, the the emphasis is not only as much on what you are praying for, but how you are praying. Once again, he is alluding to wisdom of the world and wisdom of God. It is The wisdom that God wants to cultivate is wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord. God, I love you. I treasure you. What you say is best. But some people want to keep their foot in the wisdom of the world and to say, no, this is what's right. This is good. This makes sense. This isn't foolish. The world, this is culturally acceptable. And here he's saying that is a double-minded way to pray. It's double-minded. It's got two minds going like this. What we need to pray is with a single-minded heart of faith that says, God, you have the perfect plan, even though I don't understand it. Your ways are best, and I want to follow you. So, how do we faithfully pray for wisdom? I think these three things. One, so I'm I'm picturing the scenario, what do you do when panic sets in And you're just wondering, what in the world am I supposed to do? What path am I supposed to take? What is wise? What do you do? And I think these three things might help us. One, he says, ask. That is, bathe it in prayer. Ask the one who has promised you he is generous. You ask him for wisdom. Now two, you have to ask 
does God in his word give us a clear command about this situation that I'm in? Not just, do I like what he says, or does it seem practical, but I want to do whatever God's word says. So when you're tempted to ram into the person or to cuss them out when they cut you off in the road, there's some clarity from the Bible that you don't have to pray about it, okay? Don't do it, okay? Don't cuss them out. Don't ram them in the back. Don't stop the car and try to give them a piece of your mind. That's against what God would have, okay? Should I punch the person in the face for yelling at me? No, you shouldn't. That's not something that you have to just really contemplate long and hard. This is what God's Word will tell us. But you have many times when people are asking for wisdom, should I do this or that? That they have not considered what God's Word already says is right or wrong. And many times we are lacking wisdom because God's Word is far from our routines and our minds. He promises that as you search the Scriptures, you will be made more like Him. So pray, but also search the Bible for what it already says. And then finally, you listen to His voice. You listen to what He is prodding you to. There's, you listen to counsel from godly people and you listen to the subjective sense in your heart. But don't listen to that too much. Don't place this subjective sense higher than the Bible. Don't wait for just some external word or for some fuzzy feeling because if you get the fuzzy feeling, I promise you in a couple days you won't have it anymore. There will come a time though when you can't wait any longer and you have to make a decision and there will be times that you don't know what to do. I want to free you up. And a person who is praying and a person who is seeking God and His Word, He is going to shape you. And I encourage you, after you've listened to counsel and you've pleaded with God to confirm it in your heart with a spirit of peace, no matter whether you have it or not, make a decision. Take a step. Because God will give to you generously. He will guide your path. You're not going to uproot His plan. So seek His face. Now finally, he goes in what seems to be a random direction, but I think it's really helpful for this moment, and it'll summarize everything up. He says, not only be faithful in prayer for wisdom, but be faithful in poverty and wealth. Look at what he says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of grass, the rich will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. Now if you just read that on the surface, it can sound like God is going to judge all people of wealth. That's not what this passage is saying. The church is filled with mostly poor, that he's addressing, poor individuals of faith who are being oppressed by unbelieving rich people. And so he's encouraging those who are impoverished to not let materials or their bank account define their significance, but stay faithful. Because at the end of all things, 
the ones who are maybe lowly in position on earth, but high in faith will be exalted. And those who were high in position on this earth, but maybe low in faith, they will be humiliated. He's pointing them to the end. Your wealth and your position do not make you better on that last day. And what was the temptation is wealth was tempting people to make them feel superior to their neighbor because I have more than you. Oh, may God uproot that. I have a higher position than you, then I'm better. Oh, I have more money than you, so you must be a lazy bum and I must be a hard worker. That's garbage. We have to stop dishonoring people by judging them based upon their bank accounts. We must look at what God prizes and it's faith. 1 Timothy chapter 6, what we see in this passage is Paul addressing Timothy and talking about those who are rich in materials, but also who love Jesus. Look at this. So you know he's not judging those who are wealthy, who trust Jesus. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be arrogant or haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So what we have is that he is not condemning the fact that they are rich. He's condemning the fact that they are pursuing their wealth. That's how James talks about it. And here he's talking about it as those who set their hopes upon riches. He says, no, riches are uncertain. Set your hope on God who richly provides us everything to enjoy. So how can the rich person respond in faithfulness? They do good. They're rich in good works and they're generous and ready to share. They are known as those who are not tight-fisted, but who give away. And as they give away, they're doing so in light of the end day. Because as they give away their resources, they're storing up for themselves a greater treasure in heaven. Rewards untold. Paul is really passionate, or James is really passionate, as you shift back to James chapter 1 verse 9, that... Those poor individuals who were being oppressed would look to the end and it would define their now. The end is what matters. I've been watching some NBA basketball and OKC, that's Oklahoma City Thunder, um, were playing the Spurs. And in their first game of the series, the Oklahoma City Thunder got trounced. It was one of their worst losses the entire year. Even though they have some of the best basketball players in the NBA, when Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, they got killed. However, by the end of the series, Oklahoma City Thunder won the entire series and the San Antonio Spurs are sent packing. So what mattered most? The first game or the end result? The end result. And James is saying here, you must look forward to the end because the end is what matters and the end ultimately is Jesus at the end of the day James is thrusting our vision forward to the last day to determine what matters today and tomorrow hear that you look out here to determine what matters in the here and now and he's saying living for Christ is not foolish so hear this there'll come a day there come a day when justice will be served and what is really foolish will be exposed. There will come a day when what is faithfulness will be exalted and what is foolishness will be humiliated. 
So when you forgive one who has hurt you, and you re-enter a relationship several times, even though that person has wronged you and they're not perfect, when you love sacrificially, and people call it foolish, God calls it faithful. On that last day, it won't be foolish. When you're ethical at work, and you won't commit a crime, you won't run somebody under the bus, and it might cost you a promotion. When you prioritize the church and her people, even though some groups want you to skip out consistently and not attend, your friends want you to do something else, at the end of the day, that will not be foolish. It will be faithful to choose God's way. When those that you are around participate in slander and making fun of people, whether it's at work or whether on the playground, it's not foolish to say no to that. When you refuse to gawk at that guy or girl, even though everybody else is, and they're talking about them like an object, you refuse to see them as an object of lust, but as a soul made in the image of God. That's not foolishness. That's faithfulness. And on that last day, it will have been proven to be faithful. When you choose to love your spouse sacrificially, even though things have been really difficult and you have been wronged, when you choose not to get revenge on someone, when you choose not to hit someone, retaliate, you look at that last day and it was not a foolish move. It was faithfulness. And in this context, when it comes to our finances, and you spend your money primarily not for you, but for others, and you give extravagantly to advance God's kingdom work, especially among the poor and the unreached of the nations. When you get a raise, you choose to not increase your standard of living, but your standard of giving. It's not foolish, it's faithful. And on that last day, you will see what faithfulness is. And so how in the world can we be faithful? And experience that moment of exaltation? Well, he promises us in verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from our Father who has created all things and in whom there is no change. There's no shadow. There's no shifting. He is consistent and he will give you everything you need. He's already told you. You need wisdom? Ask him. He'll give it. In your trial, he'll get you to the end. He's for you. It's an opportunity to love. Friends, he loves you. And as you seek to follow him, he will give you that crown of life on that last day. Let's pray.